Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. It's Sunday the 14th of May and we are talking hours after a ceasefire went into effect that at the time of speaking is currently holding. To look back and review the operation and its strategic significance, I'm delighted to welcome Asaf Orion. Asaf, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you for inviting for background, Asaf is a currently a senior researcher at the excellent INSS Institute in Tel Aviv. But prior to that, he spent 32 years, a distinguished career in the military. His final posting as Brigadier General, he served as the head of the strategic division of the IDF General Staff's Planning Directorate, where he was responsible for strategy and policy planning. Prior to that, he served for more than two decades in command positions in Israeli military intelligence. In addition, Brigadier General Orion holds a BA in Arabic Language and Literature from Tel Aviv University and a MPA from Kennedy School at Harvard. He has also represented Israel at the Israeli Intelligence Directors Course run by the British military. Um, uh, Brigadier General, if we could start and just review Israel's tactical successes, how significant do you think was the targeting and elimination of the senior commanders, as well as the targeting of the rocket firing cells? Well, the uh, opening, uh, let's say, context of the current uh, operation, or the recent operation, was a salvo of 100, uh, 104 rockets uh, uh, to Israel by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad after uh, one of its uh, prisoners died in a hunger strike. In uh, early May, they decided to uh, retaliate about, uh, about that, and, and, uh, and they shot Israel at will. Israel cannot uh, accept uh, being bombarded uh, by, by its enemies at any day of their choice. So it needed to uh, impose cost. Uh, uh, so in the future, they will have uh, their own deliberations of uh, whether it's uh, worth it or not. The costliest uh, price tag that can be uh, uh, exacted from those enemies are actually the leadership uh, uh, involved in directing the, the fire and managing the fire effort. And so the, the opening step of this operation was uh, uh, a, a synchronous uh, strike on three uh, leadership figures uh, in their homes uh, and, and uh, eliminating uh, them. In this sense, the opening step was uh, already enough uh, from the Israeli point of view uh, to drive the message through. If you uh, rocket uh, Israel or launch rockets at Israel uh, for whatever reason, uh, you risk losing your own uh, uh, leadership in, in this sense. Uh, those were pretty senior people. Uh, yes, they will have replacements uh, within a uh, short time, but their replacement will also uh, need to think about the uh, threat to their own lives should they follow the same tracks. About uh, targeting uh, rocket firing cells, it's, uh, it's quite a defensive effort because you need to hunt those who come to shoot at you, either uh, rockets as uh, asked or uh, anti-tank uh, guided uh, missiles. And if you catch the teams, uh, you both uh, counter the effort of uh, or foil it 
to shoot at Israel. So you thin out the fire at Israel, but you also uh, exact more cost on, on the enemy. Can I just take you back, as you mentioned at the beginning, the, the strike, the simultaneous strike against three um, senior commanders. Um, just uh, how, do you how would you describe the decision making process when one orders such a strike? And you, how would you assess kind of Israel's record on this uh, on this current operation, the ratio between military targets and, uh, and non-combatants that were killed? At, uh, such such decisions uh, begin from the strategic level when you say, okay, what's my strategic effect? And here the effect was to uh, restore uh, deterrence and remind Palestinian Islamic Jihad and all those watching that uh, attacking uh, Israel uh, is, a, is a costly uh, gamble in this sense. Then it goes to actually uh, uh, choosing the, the exact uh, uh, targets deciding who uh, is who or, or what is the most uh, appropriate uh, target to hit to achieve the strategic effect. Then uh, it goes into methods of what is the weapon system, the best suited uh, weapon system. And since it, it's uh, eventually uh, boiling down to physical dimension, the question of which weapon systems uh, and uh, can both meet uh, uh, the goal of uh, the strike and what will be the uh, collateral implications on other installations or for uh, um, non-combatants nearby. So then there is uh, an operational uh, analysis or research uh, calculating the assessed uh, damage and, uh, and losses uh, to the other side and uh, then judging that um, the, the value of striking the target in this method and in this timing uh, is indeed proportionate to the damage that's going to uh, uh, occur to non-combatants uh, nearby. And it, it's, a, it's a delicate uh, balance to, to be struck. And sometimes even uh, that you decide to go forward like uh, let's say that the decision of uh, this uh, strike was taken a week before, then waiting for the right uh, uh, operational opportunity, which means that the targets need to be uh, in a place where we can get them simultaneously. But also uh, some uh, timing uh, may preclude uh, the execution because there are too many people near the targets so the decision is being made to delay and wait for a better, uh, better uh, circumstance in which you can meet your targets with the less um, collateral damage. And in terms of the, uh, the, 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 rocket, the rocket fire and the capacity we saw up until the, uh, the deadline of the, of the ceasefire, um, in, incessant barrages of, of rockets coming over. Um, how much to dent do you think that the IDF made in degrading Islamic Jihad's uh, rocket capacity? Uh, in, in this uh, operation, we uh, uh, suffered uh, like Hamas, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, launched something uh, almost or nearly 1300 uh, rockets uh, until, until now. 
about 20% of them uh, fell in Gaza itself, including those who uh, inflicted uh, 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 fatalities among Palestinians. At least four Gazans were killed uh, by that, and another Gazan was killed in Israel while working in the fields uh, on our side of the, of the, uh, of the border. Um, uh, adding to that, Israel also struck, as, as you mentioned, uh, the launch crews, uh, some launchers, uh, several hundreds of them, probably uh, above 500. And uh, beside that, Israel also struck the uh, production sites uh, that uh, may not affect the current operation, but they uh, will uh, affect the replenishment towards the next one. So I, I think on the whole, uh, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, suffered seriously from the 80% that have crossed in, into Israel. Uh, something uh, between three and 400 uh, were actually heading into uh, populated areas, uh, which, which are on their defenses. Um, about 95% of, of, the, of these were uh, intercepted by Iron Dome. And unfortunately, we, uh, we suffered some uh, hits and impacts, including a fatal uh, impact in Rehovot, uh, damaging a, a whole building and, and killing uh, an elderly uh, lady. Uh, so on the whole, the, the capacity was de degraded, but it doesn't nullify the effect that uh, rockets are flying into Israel, disrupting the daily lives of, of many people. Sure. I mean, could you give it an estimation of, of kind of how much their their overall capacity has been uh, has has been dented, um, and maybe also just explain kind of uh, um, how they're able to replenish their supply, how they're able to perhaps even smuggle in explosive materials into the Gaza Strip. I, I guess that the current numbers of uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad arsenal are uh, several thousands, so they probably uh, used. Uh, 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 20 or 25 percent of uh, of what they have. Let, let's assume, and I don't have the exact uh, figures. Uh, they they suffered let's uh, let's say another uh, 10 percent of uh, destruction uh, by strikes. Uh, so they still have several uh, uh, thousands uh, among them or in their hands. Uh, they replenish it by self production mostly. So they need uh, uh, factories or small plants uh, to build them, to uh, uh, cast them, uh, to create a propellant, mostly by dual-use uh, materials, uh, nitrate, and, and so on. They used in, used, uh, in uh, agricultural uh, needs and, and so on. Pipelines or you know, pipes that are used for plumbing or can also be used uh, to, to cast uh, rockets. And mo mostly it's dual use uh, stuff um, smuggled from Egypt or from Israel and then used for military needs. I mean, just as a, an atmospheric question, I know you weren't there this time, obviously, but you've in the past you've served as a, a senior commander in previous rounds that have been similar um, fighting between Israel and, uh, and enemies within the Gaza Strip. I wonder if you could describe the atmosphere and, and kind of in, inside the IDF 
um, headquarters, the operations room, when such operations are being launched? It's a solemn anticipation. You know what's the, what was planned. You know that what's planned uh, sometimes meets uh, different reality. Uh, circumstances uh, change. Uh, some things you can't uh, really anticipate. The enemy has a vote. Uh, can decide to do all sorts of uh, things. And uh, I, I think in general, it's a commitment to the defense of Israel and uh, uh, trying to uh, do your best to, for, for uh, success uh, for, for us, both on the operational level to protect our homes. It's our home under fire. We don't uh, fight expeditionary. Uh, actually, it's, uh, it's something very personal. It's uh, ourselves, our children in, in, in service, our families uh, in, on the receiving end of, of the rockets. Uh, to the point that uh, you know, not not far from my home, I can uh, I uh, I can see an Iron Dome launcher and understand the the level of readiness. We hear the launches, we hear uh, the booms of of the intercepts. Uh, so I think it's it's something that uh, is taken very seriously, and uh, knowing that uh, uh, this is a national security issue, but also personal and family security. Thank you for that. I mean, back on the kind of a strategic picture, what would you just, how would you describe the relationship between Islamic Jihad and Hamas? And whilst they ran a joint war room, Hamas notably stayed out of the, the firing uh, most significantly, and Israel only targeted Islamic Jihad targets. Yes, uh, both of these are members of uh, what's uh, currently uh, called the Axis of Resistance and Palestinian Resistance. Uh, but uh, as uh, Hamas is uh, also uh, a, gover a governing uh, factor, it is 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 uh, actually the government of uh, of Gaza, and it also wants to lead the Palestinian theater as a whole. So it, it has aspiration to uh, overtake uh, or to to take over uh, uh, the West Bank uh, as well. Uh, so Hamas has uh, both a larger uh, force a larger rocket arsenal, but uh, but also some responsibility uh, for the uh, population in Gaza and a great interest in the economic side uh, after and before uh, the, the crisis and during the crisis. So uh, on on the other hand, uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad is a jihadi uh, movement. They have. No qualms about uh, uh, you know concerns for the population. They're ready to uh, to go fighting whenever they can. Uh, they they don't have the burden of uh, governance as, as one of their considerations. They're more directly uh, instructed by Iran, guided by Iran, funded by Iran with uh, several dozen uh, millions a year. Uh, Hamas gets uh, more than that. Like let's say seventy, let, let's say that Iran pays the Palestinian factions about a hundred million a year. Seventy percent of that goes to Hamas and thirty to uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, there is some kind of a rivalry, also some tension. But in this uh, case, we saw that it was very convenient for Hamas uh, uh, that uh, Pij, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad 
is uh, is doing the fighting, getting hit, getting a bit weaker, uh, getting uh, you know it's more uh, it's easier to hold them under Hamas thumb, but at the same time Hamas is staying out and ready uh, to showing some solidarity, but ready to engage in the in the future aftermath uh, of how to restore. Uh, economic activities and, and to get the benefits uh, of, of, uh, of the post-fighting uh, period. I wonder if we could focus for a moment on kind of, we, we have seen this in previous rounds, but the success of the Iron Dome anti-missile defense system, um, essentially in being able to not only defend Israel's home front, but also increase Israel's operational um, capacity and, uh, and bandwidth. To, to continue the fighting. Um, just if you could comment on that and also in how, if you were concerned at all that at any point um, the system would be overloaded due to the, uh, the, the significant level of barrage of uh, incoming rockets. Yeah, if, if we zoom out, we understand that what we are seeing is uh, the Iran school of war uh, uh, attacking Israel by uh, launching uh, rockets, ballistic uh, uh, trajectories above the IDF defenses straight uh, to the population. Of course, it, it's a terror, uh, it's a terror weapon. Uh, every Londoner uh, understands the blitz and what it does uh, when your own homes are being bombarded. Uh, and so, uh, without any defenses, Israel would uh, face a massive uh, terror effect on its population, but also uh, a serious damage uh, to, to its uh, towns, to its cities, to its infrastructure, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and uh, unguarded or unprotected, Israel would be uh, hard-pressed to enter a very large maneuver uh, operations into uh, the shooting or the launching areas. And we can all uh, imagine how it looks to maneuver into Gaza, one of the most populated areas on Earth, and, and uh, what will be the direct and collateral damages in, in destruction, in death, and, and so on. So here comes uh, Iron Dome and its uh, uh, upper tier uh, sisters, uh, David Sling, which was also, uh, um, it, it uh, did its first uh, trial by fire in this, uh, uh, in this operation. But the missile defense systems uh, allow Israel to thin out much of uh, the, the incoming uh, projectiles and protecting its population from, from direct damage. It doesn't mean that uh, people can uh, walk uh, around uh, unthreatened because things still uh, uh, fall from the sky. And, uh, and we need to stay in uh, safe areas and so on. But uh, death and destructions are much uh, thinner. So if we look at that uh, uh, percentage of success, 95% this operation, and we think, okay, what we've uh, uh, suffered can be 20 times more or between 10 and 20 times more. And you get a single hit. We, we had, I think, three serious uh, cases. One uh, in which uh, uh, in, in, the, in the first salvo of a week ago, uh, we got, uh, or beginning of, uh, beginning of May, 
we, we had uh, three uh, Chinese uh, workers uh, hurt uh, in, in Israel. Then uh, we, we uh, had this uh, lady killed in Rehovot and uh, uh, two workers in the fields were, uh, were killed uh, or one was killed and the other injured. Take this and multiply it by 10 or 20 and understand what's the weight uh, and, and uh, pressure on the decision makers, it would call into escalating the responses, including uh, uh, to maneuver into Gaza. So in this sense, uh, Iron Dome not only uh, helps uh, Israelis by decreasing the casualties and fatalities, but uh, also the Palestinians, because if Israel uh, would have suffered uh, much uh, more severe consequences, the responses should have been uh, much higher as well. So on the whole, it's an ameliorating factor. It's not free, but, but it's, uh, it's uh, significant. On, on uh, load, of course, every conflict, uh, the, our enemies uh, sit down and, and uh, draw conclusions of how, how, uh, what are the best ways to defeat Iron Dome and to punch through it. It's not a dome, it's a, it's a mesh, you know, it's a, it's a net. And uh, they are trying to saturate it with uh, uh, massive salvos and things like that. It's sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes they, they uh, succeed in finding a way through. This is why it's not 100%, but only uh, 90 something. But uh, of course, the, the system is every advanced technological system, it has its own glitches, it has uh, its own uh, faults. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work, and then you pay the full price. Uh, we had two cases like that uh, recently. Uh, but uh, on the whole, it's one, it, it, it added up to our national uh, defense uh, uh, concept, uh, historically built on uh, deterrence, early warning, decisive victory. We added the protection uh, leg to, to what our, our national posture. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, what was another interesting aspect, I suppose, that unlike a month ago when uh, uh, during Ramadan and, uh, and the Passover, where we saw perhaps for, for, for less uh, provocation, we saw rockets fired from, uh, from Lebanon, from Syria and kind of an uptick in violence in West Bank and Jerusalem. On this occasion, all the other fronts stayed quiet. How do you explain that? The, the previous uh, incident in uh, early May, early April, uh, was around the uh, convergence of uh, Ramadan and Passover uh, with friction uh, focusing on, on uh, Temple Mount. Temple Mount is a big... Uh, a fuse, I would say, to the uh, power kegs, uh, powder kegs around us. Uh, so in that incident, uh, the IDF described it as a, a multi-theater but single organization. So they actually uh, pointed the fingers to Hamas alone, uh, shooting from Gaza, Lebanon, and Syria. So. In fact, it was one organization doing it from the three uh, theaters. This time, Hamas stayed out of the equation, uh, uh, you know, uh, totally. Uh, Hezbollah 
uh, remained on the declaratory participation, showing uh, solidarity and, and uh, uh, speaking with high blaster. Uh, but but uh, that's it. So you could say that they uh, maybe thought that it's not uh, the right moment to enter and the risk wasn't worth it. And uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad was doing a good enough uh, job diverting Israel, distracting it, and so on and so forth. But uh, I wouldn't say, okay, it's from now uh, till uh, eternity, they, they will not uh, dare. Because as a continuum, we saw a Hezbollah attack uh, with a, an IED, with a, an explosive device in Megiddo uh, two months ago. We saw this uh, Passover uh, thing with the three theaters, we saw Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and we have ahead of us, tomorrow we have the Nakba Day, uh, that the Palestinians are commemorating their uh, disaster in 48, which we celebrate as our independence. And uh, uh, later this week, we celebrate Jerusalem Day for the unification of Jerusalem, and uh, uh, the famous uh, flag uh, march uh, is, is going to uh, march through, uh, through Jerusalem. Uh, and that's another point of uh, tension that we, we need to see uh, how, how we uh, you know, cross it with, without uh, further um, escalations. If I can take you on a slightly different, uh, different path for a moment. Um, What's your assessment of the responses to this latest round of fighting by Israel's relatively new allies um, amongst the moderate, pragmatic Sunni states, primarily in the Abraham Accords? How do they? How do, how do you think they perceive this latest round and understand Israel's security predicament? Uh, I think, uh, in in general, the uh, all of our neighbours, including Egypt, Jordan, and the new Abraham Accords. Uh, uh, partners uh, ha are unhappy and they find it difficult to uh, not to criticize Israel when, when Palestinians are, are being hit. Uh, every time the, the conflict erupts, uh, they have an Arab solidarity uh, need and, and they, uh, they voice it in, in a serious way. Uh, at the same time, as long as it's uh, controlled and, and uh, stopped uh, quickly enough and doesn't escalate into something wider and so on, uh, mo most of the relations can uh, continue uh, undisturbed. So we, we are back in the sense to the uh, London bus uh, paradigm when you can have a lot of business in the lower deck, the upper deck uh, looks barren and you know, cold. And just a, a final question, I suppose, on the on the bigger picture strategic outlook. I mean, we we end this round of fighting that it's kind of a, a return, a return to where we were as of last week. Um, but the fear remains that kind of the underlying um, instability and problems probably remain in place. What's your what, what's your vision looking forward of how Israel can can change that tr strategic picture and bring long term calm to the south? It's, uh, it's a very difficult uh, question or a very difficult issue to try to find a modus vivendi with a terror movement like Hamas, uh, which you don't uh, like to, uh, to see 
as the dominant uh, uh, factor in the Palestinian system, while we're suffering the twilight years of uh, Mahmoud Abbas's uh, reign, uh, is is uh, not getting uh, younger in, in this sense. And um, actually, you know, the the let's say bipolar uh, options is on one side to uh, uh, try to get to some kind of a, a peaceful uh, arrangement with Hamas, which is very difficult to unachievable. Uh, and on the other pole, there is a, a once and for all military occupation, uh, you know, a wide maneuver occupying uh, uh, and clearing up all the weapons there, you know, disarming Gaza, which would be prohibitive in cost. And, uh, and Israel is not looking for more uh, Palestinians to directly uh, control in, in Gaza. And between those uh, two, you're stuck with uh, recurring operations, as, as we see, uh, who, which uh, sometimes provide a temporary fix and sometimes the temporary is long and sometimes it's, it's uh, shorter, but it doesn't fix the whole system. And without uh, answering the question of how does Palestinian leadership as a whole look, it will be difficult to solve this puzzle as well. So we keep on living with this uh, ailment uh, without a foreseeable uh, situ situation or uh, response that will fix it you know, for the long term. Well, this is a topic I imagine we will uh, we will revisit again in the in the future. But thank you for today. Thank you very much indeed, Asaf, for speaking to me. Thank you. Stay safe.